0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tonight, and then we'll finish out 1 Thessalonians next week looking at chapter 5. By the way, I had to let you folks know I've shared this with the staff. Last week at the mine, we had 403 people here last Tuesday night. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Thank you. We're talking in 1 Thessalonians about living life with God at a higher volume. We get that from chapter 1 where Paul said about the Thessalonians that their life with Christ was echoing forth. And it speaks of a loud noise, a, a, a loud throng, if you will. And that God wants to continue to, in a sense, pump up the volume of our life with Him so that our lives can be that salt and light. And make an impact in the world in which we live. God wants our lives to count for something. That's why he left us here after we accepted Christ instead of zapping us to heaven immediately. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tonight, I really believe that this chapter divides up into sort of the three what I call Christian graces that are very much emphasized in the New Testament. They are faith, hope, and love. And the order with which Paul presents them tonight in chapter 4 is faith first, then love, and then hope last. And so we're going to look at this chapter uh, around those three things. Faith, love, and hope. Because when you and I are living our life by faith, when we're living a life of love, when we're living out our hope in Jesus Christ, we will live life at a higher volume. You'll notice he begins in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with this, attitude of God, I want more. I want more. In fact, that's what he's praying for, for the Thessalonians. He says, finally, then brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us about how you must live and please God, as in fact you are already doing, that you do so more and more. It's not that the Thessalonians weren't living for Christ, but Paul's saying But always have the attitude that, I want more, God. I want more of you. I want to learn more about you. I want to know more of your word. I want to experience you at a whole other level. I want to go somewhere with you that I've never been before, God. I want more. And can I just say, I think that's why you folks come out on Tuesday night, because you're looking for more. You're not satisfied where you are. It's all about God. I want more of you in my life. I want to experience more. I want to know more. This whole concept, in fact, goes through the entire chapter when he talks to them about love. Notice over in verse 10, he talks about them practicing love and he says, we urge you brothers and sisters to do so more and more at the end of chapter four, verse 10. So this concept of going after more and loving more and living by faith more and experiencing more of God is a theme that runs through chapter four, because that's one of the ways that you and I live our life with God at a higher level. If we're complacent, if we're satisfied where we are spiritually, then we're never going to experience all that God has for us. And we're never going to become all that God created us to be. But when we keep going after God and saying, God, I want more, I want to know more of you. I want to, experience more of you. I want to understand more of you. That's where it starts. It starts with that kind of attitude. And notice also in verse one, that our attitude or our life should be characterized by an ever increasing submission to what God is revealing to us. Because notice in verse one, two, it, it's not just about gaining more knowledge and knowing more about what God wants me to do, but how I must live and please God. And we all could say, it's one thing to know what God wants me to do. It's another thing always to be willing to do it, to in a sense submit or to, to lay my will aside and say, God, it's more about your will and what you want. And I, I personally think that that's why it's so important that we build a relationship with God. Because when you and I build a relationship with God and we get near to the heart of God, I really do think that we begin to understand that he really does have our best interest at heart. And the things that he tells us our life should be about and focused on is only for our own benefit and good. And the things he tells us to beware of and be careful of and be cautious of and he warns us of is only because God has our best interest at heart. And that takes faith. That takes that step of faith to say, God, I'm going to continue to grow in believing and trusting you more and in realizing that you really do know more than me and and, and you really do have what's best for me in mind as you reveal it in your word. And so I've just got to keep growing in my faith, keep trusting you more so that I can live and please you more and more. Verse 2. This verse reminds us that reminders of what we already know is always essential in our spiritual life. For Paul said, "You know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus." And and Peter talked about this. Many times he said, "Look, what I'm getting ready to tell you, you've already heard it before." But all of us throughout our lives, sometimes it's not always about learning something new. It's about being reminded of things that we already know that may be off our radar a little bit and need to come back onto our focus a little bit because maybe we've let that area of our life with God or someone else slip a little bit. It's always good to have reminders. You and I who've been studying the Bible or reading the Bible for even, even a few years know that we can go back to a book we've read before, we've studied before, whatever, And we can always get something new out of it because as we grow in the Lord, every time we go back to those verses and study those and everything else, we're going to get something different. It's going to be directed towards what we're going through right at that time in our life. And so it's always new. It can always be fresh in our lives. Don't ever be afraid to go back and study a book you've already studied, read a book you've already read Because reminders are always essential in living life for God at a higher volume. Notice also in verse 2, Paul reminds the Thessalonians, These are not suggestions, they are commands from the Lord himself. That's important to remember. These are not suggestions. Like, well, if you feel like doing this, do it. No, these are commands. These are, if I truly want to live for God and I want to live my life at a higher volume, these are the things that I must do. In fact, notice in verse 1 again, these instructions you received from us about how you must live and please God. There is a standard that God says we need to live in order to live for Him. And then verse 3 Our focus should be on the things we already know are God's will. So many Christians live their life groping and saying, what's God's will? What's God's will? And the Bible, many times throughout, says, this is the will of God, or this is God's will concerning this. And we're so concerned with knowing God's will about the things that we don't know, but we're not focused on the things that God has clearly said, this is my will that we can know. And my personal belief is that if we would focus on the things that God says in his word are the things that are my will and I've revealed them to you, that the other things that we want to know his will on will become more clear to us when we focus on the things we already know. Many times in my life, God has said, Jeff, just live what you already know at this point. There's some things you don't know, there's some things you want to know, but the things that you do know, just keep living those for now. And that's why in verse three, he says, this is God's will. Want to know what God's will is? Here it is. That you and I become holy. See, God's goal for people isn't just that they get saved isn't just that they accept Christ as their personal Savior and have their sins forgiven and are on their way to heaven. That's not the goal. The goal of God in salvation is that all of His children learn to, throughout their life, become holy. That's the goal. That's why if there is a Christian who says, I'm just satisfied knowing the Lord and having my sins forgiven and I'm on my way to heaven and that's good enough for me, They totally miss the heart of God. They totally miss the goal that God had in mind to send Jesus down to earth. Because it wasn't just to have a relationship. It was so that you and I might become like Christ in the ways that you and I as human beings can be Christ-like. You see, God's goal for believers is an ever increasing Christ likeness brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the will of God. The will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 3, that you and I might become holy. And you'll also notice that in this specific context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, one way we can demonstrate this is through the purity of Of our lives. For he goes on to say, This is God's will that you become holy, and one way that we can do that is by keeping away from sexual immorality. Part or verse 4 Part of our spiritual growth is our awareness of a power greater than any passion, desire, or drive in my life contrary to the will of God. That's what Paul means when he says, as we grow, hopefully we get to the point as a Christian where each of us knows how to possess his own body in holiness and honor. Please don't miss this. This isn't about me getting to the point where I'm strong enough to do this on my own. That's not what he means by verse four. What he means is that I will become aware Of the power that God has available to me. And that that power is greater than any passion, desire, or drive that is contrary to the will of God. If God's will is this, then the Bible teaches God will enable me to do His will. He will give me the ability to do it. So that means that whatever is in my life, whatever it is that is contrary to God's will, I've got to, in my heart and in my mind, go, but there's a power available to me greater than that, that I can say no to that and yes to God. And that's faith. That's faith at that moment, believing that God's power is greater than this thing that's dragging me down. I had to get to that point. I had several people here lately who've heard my story about my battle with anxiety and all of that for years say, what finally turned it for you, Jeff? And I think what turned it for me was getting to the end of myself. What was finally saying, I can't do this at all on my own. God, it's all you at this point. And having the faith to truly believe that there is a power out there through Christ that was in my life that was going to be able to help me in time to totally overcome the anxiety that had gripped and paralyzed my life. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It was a process. But that process eventually gave me full deliverance from the anxiety and the worry, and I praise God for it. But again, it's just an illustration for my own life that whatever is in my life that's holding me back from being what God wants me to be and created me to be, I've got to, by faith, truly believe that His power is greater than any other power in my life. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 4. Obviously, in this context, it's all about maintaining my purity and about abstaining from sexual immorality, but we can take the principle and we can apply it to any area of our Christian life. And this is one of the keys of us living our life for Christ at a higher level, always knowing that that power that is greater than any other power through Christ is available to me as a Christian to beat anything that is contrary to the will of God in my life. You see, in verse 5, he also says we have the resources from God to live a distinctive lifestyle that's different from our life before we came to Christ. Because he says in verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, God has given Christians, his children, resources to be able to live differently than those who don't know God. Again, that's one of the great, to me, reasons why we should share Christ. It's not just about our sins forgiven, which that's great. It's not just about a home in heaven for eternity. That's great. But it's about a power to live my life down here on earth. That's really what people are looking for. Not so much, okay, that's great what God's going to do for me one day, maybe. But I want to know, how can I get through life Now? How can I deal with the adversity of life now? How can I get through the struggles of life now? I want to know how to deal with life now. And that's what God's salvation brings. Because remember, salvation is in three tenses, folks, in the Bible. We are saved from the penalty of our sins the moment we accept Christ as our Savior and we're totally forgiven in Christ. We are now being saved from the power of sin through our life. In Christ. And one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin when we enter glory with Jesus. That's salvation, you see. So when we think of salvation, don't just think of it as the moment I accepted Christ. That's great. That's where it started. But it's also right now about the power that God wants to bring into our lives so that we can live life at a higher level. And that's what Paul's talking about. Verse 6. One of the reasons why God warns us about sexual sin is because sexual sin destroys community. And remember in First Thessalonians chapter 4, these Christians were going through tremendous persecution and adversity and affliction and all that. They needed each other. They needed each other more than ever. And one of the ways that their community, if you will their oneness, their unity could be destroyed is when these Christians in Thessalonica would begin committing sexual immorality with each other and destroying families and destroying marriages and destroying relationships that would drive a wedge in the community of the church. And so Paul is saying, we've got to be careful. You know, this thing that we say, well, it's just between me and this other person never is. Sin is never in a vacuum, folks. Sin always affects so many other people around us. We cannot sin in a vacuum. And our sin affects other people. And one of the things about sexual sin and why God is so against it is because it destroys trust. It destroys relationships. It destroys the community that God tries to build through purity and remaining pure. In fact, God goes on to say in verse 6, Sexual immorality will bring painful consequences. Maybe not at first, but down the road at some point, sexual immorality will bring painful consequences. Yes, the Bible says sin is pleasureful for a season. It's not that sin's not pleasureful. But sin will run its course and be pleasureful for a time, but then there's going to come a time where those painful consequences will begin to come into my life. And again, God's not saying this because he's some killjoy. Let's remember it was God who created sex in the first place. God knows how sex needs to be used in the human realm in order for it to achieve its highest purpose. And anything less than that, from God's perspective, is missing the mark. And that's why God talks about it in the Bible. And since verse 7, God calls us to holiness. Again, Paul says he can enable us to live holy. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. So then, verse 8, Paul reminds, this is not man's opinion. This is God's revelation. And we can ignore it or reject it, but if we do it, we do it at our own peril. Now we might think, boy, this message of sexual immorality or sexual purity is a hard sell in our culture. Well, guess what? It was a hard sell in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. If you read the history of Thessalonica, this was not going to be a popular, politically correct message even 2,000 years ago in the city of Thessalonica. It just wasn't. And it's no more popular today. Sexual license is viewed as natural. And the only concern from a cultural perspective is that sex be safe. That's all. Not sacred, but safe. Living out the will of God becomes a reality in believers' lives only through the agency and power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he mentions the Holy Spirit very importantly at the end of this passage and at the end of verse 8. Notice, consequently, the one who rejects this is not rejecting human authority, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And the implication and reminder there is all of us might say, How can I live pure? In this world in which I live, how can I live so pure in a culture that is so sexually saturated and, 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 and looking at it from a whole different, how can I, through the Holy Spirit of God. Again, you and I can't do it. But if we learn to yield and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do through Him what we could never do on our own. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit, or we can walk in the Spirit, and we can live in the Spirit and yield to Him. And it is only when we do that, that we can begin to live our life for God at a higher volume. And it takes faith. It takes faith to believe That the power that I have available to me as a Christian, again, is greater than any other pull, any other desire, any other power out there that is contrary to the will of God that's pulling against me in my Christian life. Verse 9, we come to love. Loving one another was a hallmark of Jesus' teaching and was modeled through us, or modeled for us through his life. That's why Paul says in verse 9 on the topic of brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And again, in context, let's not miss the fact that this passage that spent eight verses on sexual purity or sexual immorality, however you want to look at it, is butted up against this passage now on love and what real love is. And love biblical love christ-like love isn't about self it's about others it's about glorifying god if it's about me yeah that's that's selfish that's not love from the bible perspective and he's saying look jesus always was teaching people about love jesus's whole earthly life was about love the son of man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many the day before he was crucified, he was up in the upper room taking the towel and girding himself and going around washing his disciples' feet as an example to us to love one another and to lay down our lives for each other. And you know the amazing thing about what Jesus did that night? One of the amazing things is that not only did the Son of God stoop to wash the disciples' feet, he washed Judas's feet that night, the one he knew would betray him, that's love. That's love. That's why we don't have to be taught by anyone to love, because God has already taught us all about what love is. Verse 10, and indeed, he says, you are practice, practicing it toward all the brothers and sisters in all of Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, again, do so more and more. He encourages an overflow of love to all around him. And again, how can I love others this way? By by truly allowing the love of God to truly flow into my life. And to begin to understand just how crazy God is about me. That God loves me more than I could ever imagine and when I turn my back on the love that Jesus is offering me I am turning my love on uh, turning my back on the greatest love I could ever know that's how crazy God is about you and me and when you and I begin to grasp just how crazy in love God is with us that love then can begin to overflow to others around us. Verse 11, this love is displayed every day in our conduct. Because he says, I'm asking you to aspire to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Basically, all those are talking about, don't be a busybody, meddling and sticking your nose in other people's business. Just get out there, do your job, mind your own business, work hard, and at the end of the day, lay your head on the pillow at night. And it's, it's just by the way we even move and conduct ourselves in our relationships with people throughout the day that show our love for them. In fact, verse 12, I think, reminds us that this kind of conduct will gain respect even from those who don't claim to have a relationship with God. And if you study verse 12, what he's really saying is our work ethic, which is one of the things he sort of pulls out and emphasizes Our work ethic will be a key element of our testimony, especially to those that don't know God. In this way, verse 12, he says, you will live a decent life before outsiders and not be in need. Now, again, I want to clarify. He's not saying that there aren't times as Christians that we're in need. We are. Sometimes we need other people to help us out. The Bible teaches us to bear one another's burdens, to carry other people's burdens. So the body of Christ is called to that. But if you study this, he's not saying, oh, I can live my life in such a way that I'll be always so self-sufficient that I don't need to rely on anybody. That's not biblical. What he's saying there, if you study those verses, is that he's saying that when you and I apply a work ethic to our lives... And we just get out there and work. We're not going to be looked at by those especially that don't know Christ. That we're lazy. That we're always trying to work an angle. That we're always trying to avoid uh, an honest day's work. That we're always trying to to come up with some quick get rich quick scheme or something like that. Though there's something honorable, the Bible says, about just getting out there every day and working hard and having that work ethic and that somehow that's going to, over time, gain the respect of people who are observing and watching our lives. That's what verse 12 means. That's one of the ways I show love, even in my life, to other people. Verse 13, we've talked about faith, we've talked about love Let's end with hope. This area that Paul begins to talk about here was an area where their understanding was deficient. We all have areas in our spiritual life where we may know more a little bit about this doctrine or this part of the Bible or this book of the Bible or this over here more than we do others. And part of our spiritual growth and continuing to study the Bible is to try to bring up those areas in our life where our understanding is deficient. Because the more we understand, usually the better off we are. Many times the reason we suffer as we do is because of our lack of understanding and knowledge about certain things that God has already revealed to us. That's why God said, My people many times are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. If they only knew the promises, if they only knew the power that was available to them, if they only knew these things, then they wouldn't have to to be living in such mire that they could rise above it if they just knew. Well, one of the things that the Thessalonians were deficient about it and, and was causing some angst in their life and some concern and worry and all of that was death. And, and, and what happens when Christians die? And, and, well, if we have loved ones or friends who've already died, are they going to miss the return of God and all of this? So they didn't have a full understanding. So Paul wants to give them an understanding to encourage them, to comfort them, to bring them hope. That's why in verse 13 he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. See, God wants his children to be informed, Because God says, the more you know about what my Bible says about this stuff, the more you and I will be able to navigate life and be able to rise above our circumstances. That many times the reason we are wallowing in the mire of our lives is because we just don't know what we should know or what we need to know in order to help us to rise above. And that was true here. So, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Folks, in the New Testament, sleep is a metaphor for the death of a Christian. Sleep is a metaphor for the death of a Christian. The reason why God chose that is because he wants us to picture the death of a Christian as someone who is at rest... In fact, obviously, as a pastor, I've done many funeral services and memorial services. And if the body is there, the body of the individual just looks like they're sleeping. They're at rest. In fact, the word cemetery means a place of sleep. And the reason why God chose that is because a Christian now, when he or she dies, is at rest but not inactive. Because the Bible teaches that when you and I go to heaven, heaven is not a place of inactivity. Heaven is a place where we are serving and, and we're learning and we're growing and we're exploring and all that. It is a place of activity. The rest is the rest from no more having to deal with Satan poking at me. No more having to deal with this flesh that keeps pulling me opposite of the way God wants me to go. No longer living in a world where this world system is is so anti-God and against God and denies God that, that I struggle there. No more of that struggle. That struggle, the day a Christian dies, is done. We are at rest when we die. And that's why God uses the metaphor of sleep for the death of a Christian. So, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. A couple of things I want to mention at this point as well that I do in funeral services. First of all, I believe that God gives us an intermediate body to live in when we die until our body is resurrected say, Jeff, what do you base that on? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 says that when this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building of God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And when you study the Bible, you and I have always read stories about saints of God who had died hundreds if not thousands of years ago, yet when they appeared in the Bible, like Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they saw Moses and Elijah in a body, not some disembodied spirit. There is nowhere in the Bible that teaches that we're some disembodied spirit. God understands that we understand body. That's what we understand. That's why God's going to give us a body to live in heaven for all of eternity and why I believe God gives the saints who die a body to live in until their body is resurrected. Oh, by the way, another important thing. When you and I die as Christians, we go immediately to be with Jesus. There's no holding tank. There's no waiting somewhere. The Bible clearly says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you and I die, we go to heaven. In fact, let me give you another biblical evidence for that. Jesus, the day he was dying on the cross, had one of the thieves that was being crucified next to him place his personal faith in Jesus and basically said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, when we die, we go immediately to be with Jesus if we know him as our personal savior. That's what the Bible teaches. And these things should be a comfort to people who don't have an understanding of what the Bible teaches about death and where do we go when we die and what happens to us when we die and all of that. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does answer the ones that we need to know in order to bring us comfort and encouragement on this side of death, on this side of heaven. But notice in verse 13, he says, our grief is Christians should be tempered and informed by the hope that we hold. It's not that God doesn't expect us to grieve when someone dies in our lives. God grieves. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. God understands grief, and it's healthy to grieve. The only thing that I encourage people who are going through grief is just to relax with your grief. Because all of us are different. All of us are unique creations of God. And no two people, not even two Christians, grieve exactly the same. But we all should grieve. We better grieve. Because if we just stuff it and we hold it all down inside and we don't let it out and get it out at some point, that's not healthy, that's not good. God wants us to grieve. The The only caveat to that is God is simply saying, but as a Christian, grieve as those who have hope. And remember, hope isn't that English way we use hope where I'm, I'm wishing for something but I'm not sure of it. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation because my hope is based upon the character of God and the Word of God. Therefore, I'm sure about it. See, I don't have to worry about... 18 years ago, when my father passed away, where he was. He was with Jesus that day that he passed away. I could preach my own father's funeral because I had not only the assurance and the hope of where he was, but I knew that one day I was going to see my father again and spend eternity with my dad because he knew Jesus and I know Jesus. That's the hope that we have as Christians. That's why, as a pastor, I can do the funeral of a non-Christian and a funeral of a Christian and they are two completely different environments. In fact, just Saturday, I did the funeral of someone from Cornerstone over here in the Student Center. Folks, it was a celebration. It was a celebration. It wasn't a somber funeral. It was a celebration of their life. It was a celebration that they knew Christ as their Savior. It was a celebration that they are in heaven in glory with Jesus. And it's a celebration that those who know Christ are going to see them again. That's the hope that we have. You see, the Bible teaches in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who have hope and those who have no hope. And God wants his people to have hope, even in the face of death, even in the face of the darkest days of their life that they will face. God says, I want my children to always have hope. In fact, one of the things I remind myself is faith is believing in the promises of God. Hope clings to them. God wants his children to have hope. Verse 14, the reason for our hope, Jesus' resurrection. But notice, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, because if I really don't believe that, then I probably don't have any hope. But if I believe truly that the Son of God conquered death and then made a way for me to conquer death, that gives me hope, even in the face of death. That's why Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in me even though you were to die, you will live again. He says to Mary and Martha at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. We either believe it or we don't. And the Bible says, if I believe that Jesus conquered death and then made a way for me to conquer death, then I can even have hope in the face of death if I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Also notice in verse 14 that in death believers are not separated from Jesus. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians, which was one of their main concerns, the Thessalonians. What happens to my friend who's a Christian who died? Are they going to miss the return of the Lord? Are they not going to be there when the Lord returns? Where are they going to be at? What role are they going to play? See, Paul says, oh, far from missing the return of the Lord, they're going to play a prominent role in the return of the Lord. Verse 14. Verse 15. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord. See, Paul's reminding them, and he's reminding us, Jesus promised to return. Again, Do we believe it or not? Jesus promised us that one day he was going to come back to earth and return. John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And Jesus is preparing a place for you and for me. Notice that Paul believed in verse 15 that Christ could even return in his lifetime. Now, obviously he didn't, but Paul believed that he could. And I believe that Jesus Christ can return in our lifetime. In fact, Jesus Christ could return before this night is out. There is nothing in the Bible that has to take place No prophecy yet that has to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back and to take his people back to heaven. There's nothing yet that has to take place. The church, those who believe in Christ, have been looking for the return of Christ ever since even the Bible was being written 2,000 years ago. And Paul himself believed it could happen even in his lifetime. Yet those who have already died in Christ will be at the return of Christ as well. Verse 16, far from missing out on Christ's return, the dead in Christ will have that prominent role because the Bible says that when the Lord himself comes down from heaven with the shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, don't miss that. That reminds us that there will be at some point in history A generation of Christians that will never experience physical death. We don't know when. The Bible tells us not to set dates. But the Bible says we can know the seasons. And that the season for the return of Christ is getting even closer. And I believe in studying biblical prophecy that we're certainly at the doorstep of the return of Christ. It could happen anytime. And we maybe could be that generation that never has to die. I don't know about you, but heaven's not a place for pride. But isn't it going to be hard if we're in that generation to go, no, 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 we didn't have to die. You all had to die. And then there's those poor people in the Bible that not only had to die once, they had to die twice because God resurrected them. They yeah, were like, oh, I wish I was Lazarus and got resurrected. No, that poor guy had to go back and die a second time. But notice the Bible does say that those of us who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly. And that word suddenly means there's no time to prepare, prepare then. I've heard people foolishly say for years, well, you know what? I'll accept Christ just the moment he comes back. Or I'll accept Christ right before I die. Folks, there's not always time to prepare. And, and when you and I, if we foolishly wait like that, the Bible says it's suddenly going to happen in such a quick amount of time that it's not God wants us to prepare ahead of time. Because again, it's not just about having my sins forgiven on my way to heaven. It's about learning to live life and become holy, which is what we learned about tonight. They totally missed the point. And then there are those who are going to die so quickly that they're not going to have time to prepare. We all know of folks like that as well. Now, here's where we get the word rapture that you hear about. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up. That's the Greek word rapturo. That's where we get the word rapture. It means to be caught up, to be snatched away. I've had people who, they say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. So I'm like, well, the Greek word is the word Bible's not in the Bible. Does that mean we don't use it? You know, come on. The concept is there. In fact, the precedence for a rapture is in the Bible. A precedence. Two stories from the Old Testament. God gave us as a precedence that the rapture will happen one day. The story of Elijah and the story of Enoch. The Bible says in the book of Genesis that Enoch was and then he wasn't. That basically he was just there one day on the earth and boom, the next second he was gone. He was in heaven with the Lord. He was there. He wasn't there. And then there was Elijah who was a little bit more flashy because God sent down a fiery chariot to pick up Elijah. But one day he was on the earth. The next day he's in this fiery chariot and he's being taken up to heaven. And so the Bible teaches us even in the old Testament that yeah, there's going to be a generation that are, they're here and then they're not here. And that generation could be you and I. Here's the other cool thing. What a reunion. Because the Bible says in verse 17 that we who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up together with them. And the them are all the saints of all time who are coming back with Jesus to meet us in the air. I'm going to see my dad again. I'm going to see my brother and sister who died that I never knew who died before I was born. I'm going to see them that day. I'm going to see some very precious friends that day that I haven't seen for years. It's going to be a wonderful reunion. In fact, earlier on in my Christian life, the, the heaven was somehow attractive to me because of the physical beauty of it that's described in the Bible. The streets of gold, the gates of pearl, all these beautiful things. The longer I've walked with Christ, the beauty of heaven, as beautiful physically as heaven's going to be, the thing that's going to make heaven heaven for me is that Jesus is there and many of the precious people that I've known throughout my life are there. That's what's going to make heaven special to me. What a reunion. Let me also say this. Notice the Bible says in verse 17 that when Christ comes back at this point, He will gather us In the clouds. That's the difference, folks, in prophecy between the rapture and the second coming that people get so confused about. The rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. The second coming of Christ happens at the end of the tribulation at the battle of Armageddon. And the difference is that the rapture, Jesus never sets foot on the earth at the rapture. Never sets foot on the earth. He's in the clouds, and the church, those who know Christ, get snatched up, get caught up to meet Him up there. That's the rapture. But when you learn about the second coming of Christ to set up His earthly kingdom, He literally comes down, the Bible says, and will once again set His feet on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and He will will be here on earth ruling and reigning. But that coming, the second coming, is separated from the rapture, I believe, by a seven-year period. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are not going to be here, folks, during the tribulation. So don't fret and worry about it. That's something else God wants us to know. I have so many Christians. Are we going to be having to live through the tribulation? No. We're going to talk about that next week in 1 Thessalonians 5. No. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that the rapture will take place before the tribulation. Then we have the seven-year tribulation at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The thing that marks the end of the seven-year tribulation is what the Bible calls the battle of Armageddon. And when the battle of Armageddon begins, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will come in all his glory on that white horse out of heaven and will come down to earth at the battle of Armageddon. And really, it's not a battle. There is no battle. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, just takes over and sets up his kingdom. Yeah. And then here it is, verse 17. When he catches us up together with them in the clouds, we meet the Lord in the air. You and I who know Jesus will someday see Jesus. You and I individually will be able to gaze upon the one Who loved us enough to go to the cross and die for us. We're going to see Jesus someday. And be with him forever. And so we will always be with the Lord. So notice verse 18. Therefore, take all of this teaching from God. And encourage one another with these words. You see, the teaching of the Bible should serve as a foundation for ministry between Christians. That we as Christians, instead of beating each other up with the Bible and hitting each other over the head with the Bible, are supposed to use the teaching of the Bible to encourage and comfort one another. And that our ministry with each other should be to share the Bible and the promises of the Bible and the hope that we have. And I don't know about you, but I think it's a glorious hope. No wonder when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the first line of that prayer was to teach us to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, That's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. I hope that's our prayer tonight. Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm ready. I hope you're ready too. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, thank you for the hope that you give us. Hope, Lord, even in the face of death. And God, I pray tonight that we could just use the teaching of the word of God to just so encourage and build up and uplift one another in the days ahead. Lord, all of us go through times of adversity and struggle and trial, but God, we truly believe by faith that you give us all the resources we need to rise above it and to live above our circumstances. So God, may we just rely upon the power of your Holy Spirit even now. And Lord, bless our time together tonight. Help us to get to know some folks and just to build and to... Lord, restore some relationships, and God, just glorify yourself through all that happens here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I love you. Have a great night. See you out there.